3: podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at beyond zero emissions if you have some ideas for this show contact us at radio team at beyond zero emissions dot org good evening everybody tonight we've got andy on panel how are you andy i'm
0: well thank you
3: (laughs) we've done a massive amount of marathon running around before listeners appearing very calm to you but um In the studio, I've got journalist Tom Mitchell and actor Robin Laurie to help me ask the questions. So, hello, Tom, and hello, Robin.
0: Hello, Viv. Hi, thanks for having us.
3: (laughs) Well, look, tonight we're at a crossroad. The law so far has not been able to protect farmers. Their land is still being undermined by coal seam gas in Queensland and mined for coal. Next week, we'll hear from a climate action group who is taking the Adani decision to court again because the judge hadn't considered the climate impact of all that coal. So I think we're at a crossroads because the environmental laws seem to be too weak. Bruce Pascoe says we need to look at civilizations that have been successful and what laws guided them. So at about 5.30 we'll talk to Bruce about his book Dark Emu and how Aborigines cultivated and conserved this land in tune with its climate. We'll hear also from Professor Jacinta Ruru in New Zealand. She's a Maori woman and expert in wild law, as is Dr Michelle Maloney in Queensland. I got the idea for this show from journalist Tom Mitchell, who's with us in the the studio, and he'll interview Jacinta. His article is called, In New Zealand, the land can be a person. And we'd like to explore this idea about getting in tune with nature rather than exploiting it. Standing at the crossroads as we are, we can choose the path of more jobs and growth, or we can choose the path of listening to the biosphere that we depend on. I can hear the screaming permafrost, the fossil-fuelled storms that we've just had in South Australia and the logged-out forests calling to us. So that's what our program is about tonight. So I think we've got Michelle on the line from Brisbane. Hello, Michelle. Are you there? Hello, yes I am Thank you for talking to us today I've spoken to you before and we talked about wild law Michelle Maloney is the convener of the Australian Earth Law Alliance And she's recently been teaching in the USA at Florida's Centre for Earth Jurisprudence So you can see that this field of wild law is catching on And in fact, Michelle is offering Australia's first university course on earth law at Griffith University this year. uh, It's in Brisbane and they're starting on 5th of December. So welcome, Michelle, to the show and tell us first who can do this course and how to find you online.
1: Oh, thank you for having me on the show. It's very exciting. <laughs> um, yeah, we're very excited about the course. Um, as you've mentioned, it is the first time in Australia that at the university level we're able to teach a specific course looking at these trends and developments in earth laws or earth jurisprudence, also known, as you've said, as wild law. Um, the first um, course is an intensive course. It's called a summer school. It's only for a week, which is awesome. It means people can get in, get out, and get all their subjects sorted. It's from Monday the 5th to Friday the 9th of December at the Griffith University Law School. Anybody can enroll. Um, it does cost, if you're not already in the HEC system and an undergraduate student, then I think you have to chat with the student enrollment group and they can bring you in. The way to find out about the course itself is to go to our website, www.earthlaws all one word, dot, O-R-G dot au, and if you go under current projects, education, you'll find a lovely flyer there or they can shoot me an email any time. Okay, well look, at the international
3: level where you've been operating recently, how is climate change causing a change in legal thinking?
1: Well, I guess for us, um, the Australian Earth Laws Alliance, which is a group created about four years ago by a number of environmental lawyers who are extremely concerned about the operation of current laws and we're very concerned about the role that the overall legal system plays in supporting the destruction of the natural world so I think if you want to talk to folks about the specific operations of actual laws on climate change, there's a number of professors around Australia and the world who are probably more um, enlightened than I am, but as a group of lawyers who are very concerned about the way our legal system doesn't help the natural world, I can make a couple of comments Um, To us, climate change is just the most radical and terrifying of all of the symptoms we're seeing of a human society, an industrial society that has been using too much of the earth, digging stuff up and pouring it back out as waste. What we're worried about is that the negotiations and the so-called agreement in Paris last year is either too little too late or even if people can start to act in time, we're still seeing, particularly in Australia, an absolute lack of commitment at the political level to do anything to reduce um, our dependence and our output um, of carbon emissions from fossil fuel industries. So to us as lawyers who are disgruntled with the legal system, we think there are significant problems. And right now, we don't have laws in this country that address climate change. We just don't. For anyone who's been watching the valiant efforts of environmental defenders' offices, both in Queensland and New South Wales, challenging within the current legal system uh, new coal mines and seeing courts dismiss their cases because they refuse or cannot engage with issues of climate change because of coal mine interests, um, you'll see that the legal system is not geared at the moment to respond to climate change.
3: the next question is about biodiversity you know big thinkers like eo wilson are starting to say we need to reserve far more land and sea for biodiversity he says half the earth is needed now we do have laws protecting biodiversity but how can a marine park or the amazon jungle for example have a day in court how would that work
1: Well, first of all, the idea that nature should have half is a really excellent idea because it's almost a shorthand way for humans to be reminded that we're not the only species on the planet. And in fact, if you look at our amazing evolutionary history, we are but one of hundreds of thousands of interconnected um animals and plants that need each other to survive on this earth together Um, in terms of how can marine parks and others have their day in court i think there's a couple of different issues there first of all modern environmental law is only 30 or 40 years old depending on how you define it and the creation of reserves and protected areas has been a vital way to protect our natural systems the problem though is that the rest of our economic system and our political system and our modern industrial western style culture continues to take too much from the earth so even with any kind of reserve we see it being encroached upon by through land and marine activities and also you know if we pollute the atmosphere it doesn't matter what we call a protected area it's still going to be affected by climate change so our current legal system is deeply flawed um, in terms of having a day in court. Certainly the work that we're looking at, and we're very inspired by the work of a deep ecologist called Thomas Berry. And if people know of Thomas Berry's work, one of his great books is called The Great Work, Our Way into the Future. He, within the Western-style tradition, is one of the people who's been advocating. He's passed away many years ago now, but he began the advocation for something called Earth jurisprudence. And he said that any future legal system has to fundamentally recognise the rights of the natural world to exist, thrive and evolve. To anyone who cares for the earth, you would think that's absolutely normal, but it's quite a radical idea. The legal system we have in Australia and in any of the so-called industrialised countries that have been influenced by uh, European settlement is very much human-centred. Our legal system is about relationships between people um, and how we can use up the stuff around us. Uh, to benefit us. In the 20th century that property laws and all those historical almost medieval legal systems were combined with this burst in the post-1950s of a consumer culture um, and a technological capacity to take from the earth a phenomenal amount of resources. So for Nature today, to have its day in court, it's very, very hard. In the Australian legal system, we see over and over again community groups concerned about the destruction of local um, forests that are then leading to the demise of koalas. Um, either can't get to court because it's too expensive or there's no laws that would actually help them get into the space in the first place. And then even when amazing groups like EDOs get into the court, their cases and their arguments are often overturned because the current laws are not keeping up with what's going on in the ecological crisis. And our politicians are very much dominated by fossil fuel and other big industry interests. They create many of the laws and they're making sure as best they can that the little guys and the environment doesn't get a say. That brings us to the Rights of Nature Tribunal, which is what we're putting together at the end of October. We're trying to show Australians what some of the trends around the world are where natural systems and environmental spaces are getting their own legal rights. And I know you're going to be talking to Jacinta from New Zealand about what's going on yeah. there.
3: And I'd like to broadcast some of those talks at your um, conference. You know, I can't come myself, but I'm sure if we can get the audio, the listeners would be very interested in that. I'd like to move now out of the law courts and down to the communities where people are chaining themselves to trees or rowing kayaks out in front of coal, exporting ships. I'd like to know how does your Green Prince project help those people on the front line can the law keep up with them? I think you just just said they don't the law doesn't keep up I, with them. I don't them, believe
1: it does. I don't believe it does. Mm. I think there are many look, there are many wonderful developments in the last forty years. I mean environmental law as we know it today was really only born in the early seventies. And when you think about the legal system we had before that, it was hundreds and hundreds of years of, you know, created through medieval English ideas about property and, and mm. wealth protection. I think two things. Uh, The activist work we see today is profoundly important. I mean, I often say that systems do change, cultures change. If they didn't, we would still have legalized slavery in the US. Women wouldn't be able to vote. Um, There'd be a whole range of things we take for granted today that wouldn't exist. Therefore, the people who are out there chaining themselves to stuff, um, trying to fight very hard to save life on Earth, um, are ahead of the curve. They know that these things are important. Is the law serving them? Sometimes they win, sometimes they lose. Um, I think at the moment, we would say this over and over again, the legal system really dominates um, the, the realm within which community groups can can challenge big developments and unfortunately the legal system is absolutely pro-development that's without a doubt um, you mentioned the Ayla Green Prince project it's a little different it doesn't really connect with helping activists so much with their immediate cause but what we are interested in is this broader question of well okay Ayla, you're interested in earth-centered law and governance what does that look like? What's interesting about our modern society is that we haven't had to live within our ecological limits. We have been born of this idea that humans can do whatever they want. They have dominion over nature. And it's only been particularly the 20th century where our technological capacity to rape and pillage the earth has caught up with us. What we're doing through Prince is a really interesting project bringing some of the wonderful ideas around bioregionalism that were born in the 70s and the 80s, but bringing them into a space where community groups can engage with where we live, what is our region, what's our bioregion? How can we understand what ecological health looks like in our local area and how it fits into modern scientific understanding? How can we then connect with our heart and our spirit and indigenous knowledge and wisdom to think about a completely different way of governing um, ourselves in an ecosystem so that our ecosystem thrives and so do we into the future? It's about living here forever. And that has got a number of complicated steps in it, but it's really fun. It's, um, we're gonna be starting working with a couple of communities next year to, to just play with this. And it's another role where civil society can be free to engage with work that's been done in the past in their areas, but also to dream and vision a better place, a better way to protect the natural environment, but also engage with another area of our work. We're totally committed to building a strong economy we're not against a human economy. We just believe that we can be far more creative and healthier and have a much better time if we build a new economy within our ecological our health. Mm. So that's what Green Prince is about.
3: Well, we're going to hear from two people after you, um, Jacinta, in uh, New Zealand, and Bruce Pascoe here. And I think we're, it's about changing the narrative and changing the thinking, isn't it? The thinking, or as you mentioned, consumerism and uh, people being just... It's about talking. changing the story. Yeah. yeah, changing it. And so you, you're at one level you're working, and I think they're working at different levels. Just tell us a little bit. We have not too much time more, but we're uh, just to tell the listeners about that um, you know conference you're organising and the uh You know, the tribunals that you're going to have. Yeah, just that sounds
1: really fun. Tell them about it. Yeah, well, look, I'll start with the Rights of Nature Tribunal. So on Saturday, the 22nd of October here in Brisbane, um, we are having a one day tribunal. So on the one hand, it's a bit like a mock trial, but on the other hand, it's far more in depth and far more inspiring than that. What we're doing on Saturday, the 22nd of October is we're going to be bringing together an amazing mix of First Nations elders, And other representatives from First Nations cultures in groups around Australia, scientists, citizens, people involved in environmental groups. And what we're doing is we've created this tribunal as a permanent institution for civil society to have a new voice for Earth democracy. So what does that mean? Well, here we are, we say that the legal system is not helping us. So how do we design something better? On the one hand, we have a lot of great people trying to tweak away at the edges of the legal system, but the, the change isn't sufficient. It's not happening in time. So how do we move towards a, a more a brighter but more systemic change? We have to show what that looks like. We have to examine the potential of that. So the Rights of Nature Tribunal is about, on this occasion, a public hearing of four cases... But it's very different. We've turned the law on its head and we're taking it from an earth-centered point of view. The four cases are the Wara or Fitzroy River from the Kimberley. We have traditional custodians coming to the tribunal to argue that this river um, needs to be protected through ancient first laws and a recognition of the rights of nature. And they're looking directly to um, precedents around the world, including but not exclusively the New Zealand um, examples that have been popping up under uh, the Maori negotiations under Triti Waitangi. We also have the Great Artesian Basin as an ecosystem, challenging what humans are doing to it, challenging the coal, seam gas industry and challenging what government is allowing to happen. And we have indigenous, traditional custodians speaking for water and sacred springs. We have Scientists, etc. So each of the four cases, the other two is the Great Barrier Reef and the Atmospheric Commons, challenging the government's inaction on climate change. Um, and the fourth one is a, is a big one it's the Forests of Australia, challenging government inaction on stopping logging of native uh, forests. So that's like a big picture summary, but what we're working is a number of lawyers and a whole range of citizens and scientists and indigenous people, and it's really exciting because it's a reimagination of the law. It's a very powerful space, and we hope that with the support of the community and people getting engaged, we can hold hearings um, at least once a year, but then develop decent judgments that actually show how the law could be changed to do things differently and to be a better way for humans to manage their own impact on the earth and to care for countries so we're really excited about the yep. tribunal everyone's welcome to attend the conference is also really awesome um i won't talk no, about we it we don't much. have
3: time i'll have to cut no. you off now there michelle and i can just lead the listeners to your website which is yep. aella a-e-l-a and um they can find out about the conference in at the end of october the
1: website's www.earthlaws.org.au Fine. and everything's on there
3: Super, thank you so much for talking to us that was very interesting and I hope that we can give a broader audience to that tribunal by broadcasting some of those talks that, that are given I think that'll be fascinating so thank thanks very awesome. much Michelle see you next time Thanks for time. having me Thank you, Bye-bye. bye bye You're listening to 3CR Radio yes. Now we're back to the Beyond Zero Mission show galloping along today. We've got Jacinta Ruru here um, on the phone from New Zealand and she's going to be interviewed by a new person in the studio called Tom Mitchell. He's a New Matilda journalist and he's going to speak to Professor Jacinta Ruru.
0: In New Zealand there's a 200,000 hectare tract of wilderness which nobody owns. It's known as Te Uruwara and it was a national park until 2014. Then something remarkable happened. The New Zealand Parliament recognised that land as a legal entity. Now, Te Uruwara has all the rights, powers, duties and liabilities of a legal person. To tell us more about this radically different conception of the environment, we're joined by Jacinta Ruru, a professor of law at Otago University and a specialist in this area. Jacinta, thanks for coming on the show.
4: Thank you for the opportunity.
0: It's a pleasure. So first off, can you just describe for us what Te Uruwara is like physically?
4: So it's a beautiful part of Aotearoa, New Zealand. It's in the North Island on the East Coast. It's quite a remote part of the country and it's densely covered with um, native forest.
0: Okay, and uh, what's the significance of this landscape now having been recognised as having a legal personality? What's the significance of this landscape now having its own legal personality?
4: It's hugely significant, so particularly for the Tūhoe people, so the Māori tribal group of this area, they describe and have always held this place to be an ancestor, to be their homeland and to be really the heart of where they come from. And so the legislation now recognises this place as significantly important to the Tūhoe Māori tribal group.
0: Mm. And the legislation recognises uh, the land as having an identity in and of itself. What does that actually mean?
4: It means, as you said there in the introduction, that the Te Uda-Weda has its own rights and its own legal ent- entity. And what the legislation does is describe r- in really beautiful language what this means for the Tuhoi people, so talks about that place as being their place of origin, their homeland, but it also goes further than that and it recognises that this land is important for all New Zealanders, all Māori tribes, and it's important for all New Zealanders, because of its outstanding natural value, its intrinsic worth, the importance of it recreationally, scenically, for its biodiversity and for its historical and cultural heritage.
0: And as a legal person, Te Urawara could actually end up in court, couldn't it?
4: Well, it could. So what the legislation does is that it... It recognises Te Urawera as, as being its own legal person, but then overlays that with a board and so puts in place a board, a management board, to speak for and speak on behalf of Te Urawera. And the makeup of that board consists of the Māori tribal group, Tuhoi-appointed members, and members from our New Zealand government
0: Mm. And Te Irawara had been a national park for decades, hadn't it? So why did the government decide two years ago that it would transform that same area of land uh, from being a national park and towards this concept of legal personhood?
4: So in the 1950s, the landscape there was put into a national park, and so a national park regime, and our New Zealand government assumes ownership of those lands and put in place a dominant, Um, New Zealand government management regime that really put at the forefront principles of preservation and conservation that align with a Western concept of owning and managing national parks or or land. And this has always been a bone of contention for the Tūhoe tribal group, It's always been um, of significant concern to see their homeland overlaid by this government assumption of ownership of their important place. And so our New Zealand government, back in the 1990s, entered into a a Treaty of Waitangi settlement regime. Um, So our Treaty of Waitangi was signed back in 1840, an agreement between... um, the British Crown and many of our Māori tribes around how to how to live here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, together, and as has been very well documented um, over decades and decades of our news, movement, clearly breaching that Treaty of Waitangi, the principles and intent of that Treaty of Waitangi. And the government in the 1990s committed to a new reconciliation initiative where the New Zealand government was going to face up, stand up to the wrongs that it has done in the past and seek a negotiated agreement with many of the, or all of the tribes throughout New Zealand. And so Tuhui and the New Zealand government came together for their treaty settlement and it became a stalemate, I suppose, as to from the perspective of the New Zealand government, the New Zealand government was articulating very strongly as a bottom line that they own national park land, whereas from the Tuku perspective they were saying, Well how can how can we agree to a settlement that that positions you as the New Zealand government is owning our our ancestor, our Uh, our homeland it was from those clash of two world views of not being able to move past that negotiating as to ownership that the legal personality idea came through as something quite innovative and exciting as a breakthrough negotiating tool
0: and so nobody ended up owning Te Uruwara did they?
4: No, so it, and this is the beauty of the legal personality concept in that it owns itself. So it neutralizes the whole ownership issue and positions. Udaweda as a place of its own entity it's its own its, has its own so in our Maori language we use the word mana so having its own authority or the or the legislation also uses this word Modi which means its own well-being So the legislation is now really recognizing up front that to Udaweda is a place in and of itself and it cannot be owned.
0: Hmm. And uh is Te Iruwara the only environment in New Zealand which is recognised in this way as having a legal personality?
4: No, so um, in another context, outside of the National Park Regime, our third longest river, the Whanganui River, the government is negotiating with the Whanganui Tribal Group the uh, recognition of that river having legal personality and so that's working its way through our Parliament, our House of Representatives. There is a bill that is being um, debated right now and we hope that that bill will be enacted very soon before the end of the year that will recognise the Whanganui River as having its own legal personality.
0: And uh, is this process of treaty settlements uh, finished? Do you think that other tribes uh, besides the Tūhoe might uh, look on at this, uh, you know, the development of this legal personhood concept and that that might start to to get a wider Adoption outside of these two sites?
4: So it will be really interesting to see how, as New Zealand, we navigate through this because, of course, there's many of our tribal groups that have already settled Treaty of Waitangi settlements from the 1990s onwards. Of course, there's still some tribal groups that are still negotiating with the government their own tribal settlements, and perhaps those tribes that are still in negotiation with the government, they may wish to bring through this legal personality idea, particularly if the New Zealand government is refusing to return ownership to the tribal group, the legal personality idea may become of interest there. I mean, I really hope that as a country in New Zealand that we will look to our own national park legislation and take some real heart from the Te legislation to amend or to reform our whole national park legislation to align much more closely with this idea that our landscapes, our important landscapes, have their own mana, have their own authority their own identity, and that we can value these landscapes that are found within national parks from a really respectful stance that respects a Maori relationship with that land and also a more wider, broader New Zealand relationship with that land and the Te Urawera legislation shows us how to do that.
0: And uh, do you are you hopeful that that might happen within the, the treaty settlement process? I mean what do you think are the chances of this legal personhood concept uh, uh Gaining some more traction, but also I know that the national park estate in New Zealand is what something like one third of the country, isn't it? So that would represent a radical shift in how the government perceives the environment. Do you think that there's much appetite for that politically?
4: Okay, I'm really hopeful towards that. So as park conservation status, one third of our country into this to Uda Weta. Um, ex- Example of where we have removed significant land from that conservation estate and put it into its own entity is something that Um, While we might not do that with our other 13 national parks, what we could do with our other 13 national parks is clearly right up front explain why these lands are important to us. So our national parks legislation um, was enacted in 1980, and I think it's quite outdated now. And the purpose for why we have national parks in New Zealand is articulated in that legislation really for scenery, science, and recreation purposes, completely absent from that national park legislation, is any recognition that these national park lands are important to Māori. And I think as New Zealand and as we've gone through these treaty settlements, that there is a real recognition there that lands from a Māori perspective – are important and that we need to recognise this and I really am hopeful that our national park legislation will embrace that opportunity to value landscapes also because they are important to Māori
0: and just before I let you go, uh, one of the things that I think is fascinating about this is if, if Te Iruwara did end up in court, represented by the Tuhoi tribe, how would things be different to a normal case around environmental damage? I mean, what would what would be the difference in the language and the values that were being argued in the actual courtroom be?
4: So I, I think you've just put it right on the nail there. I really think it's about that language. It's how we now speak about Te So in the past, under the National Parks legislation, we would simply talk about Te as having maybe some intrinsic value, but we'd really only be talking about it in the context of its science, its biodiversity, um, maybe its beautiful scenery, and maybe its recreational value. Whereas with the new legislation in there, it puts a whole different language around why that landscape is important and so if this was coming through into the courts or any discussion about Te Urawera now must start with that land being important to Māori, important to the legislation uses Māori language in a really comfortable way and talks about it, for example, as being the heart of the great fish of Māui. So Māui is one of our Māori ancestors who um, fished up the North Island. We talk about him slowing down the sun. So many of our stories relate to Māui. And he, and this idea that um, Te Urawera, as, as important as part of this whole narrative and this whole world view, would have to be a, at front and centre in the courtroom, would have to be there as the starting off point. It's not something that our courts or our judges or our lawyers can ignore
0: Okay, uh, we're almost out of time. I think it's uh, it's a unique approach and um, probably one that bears a bit more looking at in, in the Australian context too. Uh, but thanks very much for making the time to talk with us today.
4: Thank you.
1: On Sunday, the 9th of October,
4: 3CR opens its doors to the community
1: and invites you to come in and celebrate 40 years of radical radio. There'll
4: be an awesome
3: afternoon tea, roving musicians,
1: special on air broadcasts, and the opportunity to step into the studio and get behind the mic. There'll also be face painting for the kids, stalls, rolling station tours, and the chance to purchase, for the first time, 3CR
2: 40th birthday T-shirt.
4: Come in and enjoy your community radio station, 3CR Open Day,
2: 21st Street, Fitzroy, Sunday, the 9th of October, 12 to 4 p.m. See you
1: all there.
3: Back to the Beyond Zero Mission show. Now we have historian and Bunarong man Bruce Pascoe on the phone. He's the author of Dark Emu Black Seeds, Agriculture or Accident. Welcome to the Beyond Zero Mission show, Bruce, and congratulations on getting that prize from the New South Wales um, government.
2: Well, thank you very much.
3: I think you're going to change, as they say, the narrative with your book. It'll be slow, but ripple effects, you know, because I notice on my book it's got about four stickers on it from various prizes you've won and now this book of the year. So I hope the ideas in it have that same sort of ripple.
2: Well, I hope they do too and uh, I hope it changes the conversation that uh, Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people are able to have with each other about the country.
3: That's right. Well, we've just been listening to someone from New Zealand, Professor Jacinta Ruru, and apparently over there they've got uh, a 200,000 hectare national park has been given legal status, and soon a large river will be recognised as having needs before the law. Can you see us adopting that sort of law in Australia?
2: Not quickly. Um, I think we're a long way from that but we're a long way from a lot of things that New Zealand do very well, including uh, looking after asylum seekers. But I think there's a different mood in Australia at the moment, I believe. I'm up in Sydney at the moment at Jonathan Jones's um, Skin and Bones art exhibition, and we were having a conversation with a large crowd there uh, at lunchtime today. And it's a distinctly different conversation and that I was was having with people even three or four years ago. So I'm hoping that Australia will begin to accept its history and in accepting the history will also accept the reality of the land and what the land needs because I think we're abusing the land very badly and we need to treat the land as Aboriginal people do, as if it was our mother.
3: Well, Dark Emu became the New South Wales Book of the Year and I think it explodes the idea of Aboriginal people having no agriculture, no building, no real impact on the land and I think that disrespectful idea proved fatal to Burke and Wills. I just passed their statue in in Melbourne this afternoon and I thought they starved near where Aboriginal people were living quite well and I think we should have some street theatre out there just showing how suicidally stupid they were but I don't think we can afford to sideline Aboriginal ideas any longer. And with climate change in mind, can you tell us what sort of practices and crops you would like to see restored?
2: Well, I I think that um, the myth that Aboriginal people did nothing with the land served the purposes of the Australian government and the British government very well in that it allowed a Christian community to... Assume that they could just take the land of savages, um, but in fact, Aboriginal people had an agricultural economy. Uh, the explorers saw that agricultural economy, and so did the first invaders or settlers. Um, it's incontestable, and so we need to change the conversation so that we can begin to use these plants. Uh, there were many many grasses up to 80 or 90 grasses that were ground into flour to make bread Uh, there were tubers uh, which were staple products for uh, Victoria New South Wales, South Australian and Western Australian people and uh, we don't use any of them Um, no one knows their name if it wasn't for Beth Gott we would hardly know anything about the science Uh, fortunately um, in the records we have language words which tell us a lot about the cultivation of the, the murnong or the yam or in south coast New South Wales, Guruman and for the last five years, Ewan uh, people and many other people, people at Corander, people in South Australia have been uh, trying to bring back the murnong and um, uh, cultivate us and we're doing the same with the grasses. We'll be harvesting some of those grasses this summer so that we can convert it into flour. And these are products that are going to become commercial products Um, and I don't think that we can stop uh, non-Aboriginal people from using them and I don't think we want to. Um, We want to do it together but we want uh, Australians to remember who domesticated these plants, who has the intellectual copyright in these plants and who deserves a chance to develop an economy and an income and job opportunities out of it instead of when the abalone suddenly became popular with Japanese and Chinese uh, aboriginal people were deliberately excluded from gaining a license to dive for abalone and in fact one of my cousin's nephews is in jail for so called poaching abalone because he didn't have a license
1: Mm. Mm. Well
3: look Um, This program is mostly about climate action, you know, and I realise there's layers and layers of injustice behind everything, you know, in your book, and um, that you want to rewrite the um, story that we understand that that has to be redressed. And something that came to me when I was reading about those grasses were that they must be very good at sequestering carbon, you know, those perennial grasses with long roots. And Major Mitchell, in one of the quotes in your oh, book, he, he was exploring the country and he said it looked like an extensive park. But then you said all that changed. Yeah. How can we restore those grasslands, even just for climate change, um, you know, climate uh, carbon sequestration?
2: Yeah. Well, um, I don't think it's going to be too difficult. Um, uh, many of these grasses are used as pasture grasses. It's not going to be too difficult um, to. Uh, extend the plantings of them and to use the grain for flour. But the beauty of these plants is that you never have to plough your land again. They're uh, perennial plants. The root mass of kangaroo grass, for instance, is massive. Uh, So these plants stop erosion, but they do sequester carbon. And because you're not ploughing the land, you're not releasing that carbon. And because you're not driving your tractor as much, You're not using carbon fuels as much. I think these are plants that are going to be terribly attractive to a country that is trying to reduce carbon. Well, no, actually, this country isn't trying very hard to reduce carbon. But when we decide to, uh, when our politicians decide that this is important, really important, then uh, these are the grasses we will turn to and um, we'll be glad we did.
3: Okay. Well, look. Another problem with um, on the land, you know, still thinking of the emissions from the land meat is a really big problem. It delivers a lot of emissions from the methane burps and the land clearing for sheep and cattle. And um, I think, however, we can't all go down the path of the vegan diet, and some meat can still be part of the diet. But you suggest that kangaroo meat could be the answer. But I can't see how we could farm kangaroos. They just hop about everywhere.
2: Well, um, Aboriginal people farmed kangaroos, uh, by using a batu system where, uh, kangaroos were slowly drafted into a, um, in, in between two giant walls, uh, which had been constructed by Aboriginal people and very slowly, uh, kangaroos followed those walls and eventually became impounded. Um, and we've found quite a number of sites like that uh, that had been used to draft kangaroos, so it's not impossible. It, d- it does require a little bit of imagination and it dis- does require Australians to remove their disdain um, and t- to stop discrediting Aboriginal achievement. And then we'll discover a lot of
3: things that are very useful to us. Right. I've got two people in the studio. One is Robin Laurie, who put me onto your book in the first place, and she said she'd like to ask you a question. then I've got another person here, Tom Mitchell from New Matilda, and he'd like to ask you a question. So, Robin.
1: Bruce, hello. It's lovely to to be talking to you. Bruce, I I wondered if you could explain a little bit about... um, how the methods of social—you—you you talk a lot in the book about what we can, what white society can learn from Aboriginal civilization, and—and I—I was interested in what are the methods and structures of social organisation that you think would be useful to us at this crucial time in our history.
2: Well, the, the most useful thing, of course, is to have a a society on who main premise is peace um, and respect for women Uh, those two things on their own go a long way to repairing a lot of society's ills Uh, the old people uh, over a very long period of time constructed a system which was based on everybody being able to eat everyone being able to be housed everyone involved in the culture everyone being able to contribute Uh, to the social welfare of each other and that uh, system was taken up by young people generation after generation for 80,000 years. It had such great logic and such great appeal that uh, it was adopted, adapted but stayed essentially the same over all that period of time and it's because it's so logical uh, that humans um, have vices Aboriginal people have vices. Everyone on earth has vices. It's how you manage those vices of greed and violence and anger um, and how to get the best out of people, to get the best out of our best selves. And the old geniuses of Aboriginal society created a system that utilised the best parts of our nature, not the worst, not the greed, not the violence.
4: Great. Thank you, Bruce.
0: And, uh, Bruce, I-, I was at your talk at the Melbourne Writers' Festival a little while ago, and you, you pointed out that colonisers actually had to work very hard to ruin Aboriginal agriculture when they tried to replace it with English-style farming. I think you gave the example of the tiered yam daisy crops around Melbourne, which you might like to talk about. But does it follow that it would be an easy switch back to the sort of agri- agriculture Aboriginal people were practising? What are the barriers to the sort of transitioning you're envisaging?
2: Well, Aboriginal people we're working cooperatively um, across many language uh, boundaries so you have to uh, you have to gain cooperation of the community uh, so that the people are working together instead of against each other and a lot of our social structure is adversarial we are competing with each other not working with each other so that's going to be a difficulty But it won't be very hard to introduce some of these foods into the Australian population. We're going to um, be selling flour this coming autumn to some of Melbourne's top restaurants, um, some of Sydney's best bakeries, and we're also going to sell it at farmers markets. And I'll eat my hat if we can't get rid of that in an hour and a half. Uh, We won't have an enormous amount of production. But I think uh, people who are interested in food, uh, interested in their health, and interested in the health of the country, are going to flock to these foods. Because the yam daisy, for instance, was very, very good for the soil. The way it was cultivated, the interaction between the plant and the soil itself was very positive. And uh, these things are going to prove themselves to gardeners and, and farmers across the nation. And very, very slowly they'll become part and parcel um, of our home gardening and our commercial farming.
3: Okay, so thank you very much, Bruce. I've got time for just one last question. We were going to ask you about fire, but I think we should leave that for another um, program because I think it's a really big subject and I'd really like you to in detail explain about the fire you know farming via using fire so we'll leave that out but listeners will be probably asking me why we didn't touch on it but i'd like to really thank you for writing dark emu i think for aboriginal people even most indigenous people it's unthinkable to flog the land as we have done in the last two centuries in australia and your book restores our respect for those ancestors who cultivated the land um, you've answered Robin's question about the social organisation a little bit. I'd like you to talk more about on the um, philosophical level, how can we make it you know, what things would start to make it unthinkable to continue exploiting the land as we're doing now because it's really ecocide.
2: We have to think about the earth as our mother um, because we, we all come from the earth uh, and we all come from the mother. Uh, that's what Aboriginal people believe, that uh, we rise from the mother we rise from the mother's heartbeat when we begin to look at the earth as our mother it should be um, abhorrent to us to do any damage um, for instance if we, we thought about the Murray River as if she were her, our mother we wouldn't take all her water um, to within an inch of its life so that blue green algae occurs in that river Every summer, and the people of Adelaide, part of our federation, don't get any water. You know that would become abhorrent to us. And an eight-year-old child uh, could design a plan where Adelaide got water. Uh, water was shared with irrigators, but some was left in the, in the river. An eight-year-old child would find it so stupid uh, to think that you could take everything and give nothing back. And I think we should ask a lot more eight-year-old children um, (laughs) because our politicians are failing us.
3: They sure are. All right. Well, I I thought the other day with the uh, big storms in Adelaide, the minute there were suddenly, you know, you're a historian. It was interesting, wasn't it, how there were suddenly two narratives. One narrative said um, it's all because we have this renewable energy in the system and if we had less of it and the states weren't so aggressive about wanting it, then we wouldn't have had this damage. And the other narrative said, hang on, it was the power towers going down and the lines going down and all the sources of energy were shut down those two narratives were just playing out in the public view and I think it's like you've done a history historical sort of revisit to those early settlers who noticed all this aboriginal cultivation but somehow that noticing just got suppressed for a political um agenda as you as you've described so i think australian people are quite educated they should really be tuned into these narratives that keep popping up and and fighting with each other and like think hang on can this be right or just let's mm-hmm. be rational here. I, I
2: th- Ask the eight-year-old child. Ask the eight-year-old, the eight-year-old <laughs> <Yeah>. child. <says. laughs>
3: That's right. All right. Look, thank you very much. It's been a really lovely thing to talk to you, and um, I think the listeners will read your book and enjoy it. It's called Dark Emu, and um, I really thank you for talking to us.
2: Good on you. It was lovely to have a yarn.
3: Thanks very much, Bruce. Okay, so that was um, author Bruce Pascoe. He's a historian and Bunurong man. And there's lots of ideas there. And as you see, the Writers' Festival and all these uh, literary awards are being given to this book because it's kind of seminal. It's starting a whole new uh, wave of thinking and it it would be very good for people to read it. And I hope it certainly gets into the schools because I used to teach at school and we, 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 we had books that just showed Aboriginal people wandering around the country more or less passively. So... Um, read dark emu i'd like to thank tonight all the people who've participated in this show it sounds simple but it's in fact been a huge number so thank you tonight to the radio team teddy jody and roger behind the scenes andy tom and robin in the studio and thank you to the guests who were professor um jacinta ruro in new zealand bruce pascoe from sydney and michelle maloney uh, calling us from brisbane I'd also like to send out a congratulations to one of the friends of this show, who is Fiona Armstrong. She's been honoured this week for her work at the Climate and Health Alliance. She's um, brought, or she's sort of positioned medical people at all sorts of climate gatherings. She's always there herself. I've seen her late at night in little country towns with a huge suitcase full of books, (laughs) bigger than herself, and she's just never giving up on climate change and the health aspect of it. So, you know, really I endorse all these congratulations that have been flowing to Fiona and thank her for her ongoing work. I'd also um, like to give you some climate action this week. Um, There's a talk on tonight at 6.30. It's a bit late, um, but if you're in Melbourne, near Melbourne University, at 6.30, it's on the corner of Elgin and Swanson Street, um, upstairs at the Fritz Lowy Theatre. And the speaker is from Reposit Power. His name's Luke Osborne. So that'll be interesting for people who are interested in uh, renewable energy. On Saturday, the eighth at eleven a.m., you can go down to an event at Federal Federation Square. It's about divestment. Uh, since Paris, the four big banks have loaned five point six million dollars. Since Paris, that's since November, five point six million to fossil fuel projects. So tell them that you will choose another bank if they go on supporting these, um, you know, regressive uh, projects. There'll be street theatre there from the Men in Suits and music from a group called Bums, Billionaires, again, Undermining. The last thing is a call-out for Radiothon donations. Now, we did have Radiothon back then and we were very generously supplied with donations from you, but 3CR still needs to be financially independent and we haven't quite made the quota. So could you please support us? Beyond Zero pays for our studio fees and we each pay all our own expenses, but the station needs to keep going and they support all of our programs. So we need a bit more money, so even if it's a donation of $10, could you please call 9419 any any day of the week, you know, or, um, in, in working hours, 9419 and keep this show afloat. And lastly, before we go, we're actually finishing a bit early tonight. I have another person in the audience, in the in the studio, but she's sort of in the audience. Her name is Sabine and she's from France and she's on a tour of the world and um, I want her to send a cheerio to our best listener who is in Mudgee, and this is a sort of secret listener. Uh, Sabine, can you go near a microphone? Um, she's a, a our, our listener in Mudgee always sends me an email after every show, so I know there's thousands of people who listen to this program, but only one replies and to, tells me, you know, I because she's French, she's very critical of things, and she's analytical, and she tells me the whole thing. So it's a lovely cheerio to our friend in Mudgee. And Sabine, can you say hello to her? Salut Babette et salut Bernadette.
0: (laughs) So there we are. There's a little bit of French communication going on here. Thank you very much for everything, everybody.